it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. I'm Anushka Astana, and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage Every day from Hartlepool. I mean, the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places, and actually, that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point. To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats. We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Anushka Astana, and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage every day from Hartlepool. I mean, the government talk about left-behind towns and left-behind places, and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point. To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats. We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts. John Amici is a respected organizational psychologist, best-selling New York Times author and CEO of Amici Performance Systems, a consultancy that partners with organizations to help leaders move from being transactional to transformational. He's also an openly gay black man. Today, we talk about his love of libraries, why the LGBTQ community isn't really a community after all, the attendant anger that comes with any awakening, and the moment he realized he could be a Jedi. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with John Amici. So, John, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. It means the world to have you here. I mean, there are not many um, openly gay black titans slash icons for us to um, for us to look to. So, I enjoy the title. I'm not sure that's well earned, but I enjoy the title. I'll, t- I'll take it. Um, so, in 2011, you were awarded an OBE mm-hmm. on the Queen's Birthday Honors List, and in a statement, you said this. I see this honor as a chance to reach out and do more to create an equality of opportunity for all people, but especially to inspire young people. I was once an overweight bookworm who hid in the corner of my school library and wished I was invisible. My mother told me that I could be better than just disappear. She convinced me that the most unlikely of people in the most improbable of situations can become extraordinary. She was amazing. Uh, It's so beautiful. And I want to start there. I want to start in the library. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that time in your life. What brought you to the library and and why did you seek refuge there? So uh, probably growing up before I was 11 years old, uh, I loved books. I mean, I I love books now. So this is is somewhat on reflection. But before I was 11, I knew exactly who I was. um, Because I could look up at any time into my mom's face while I was reading and it wouldn't matter what I was reading. I loved to read Asimov, science fiction. Uh, and if I'd look up and look at her looking at me while I'm reading, I just knew who I was. I was a clever boy. Mm. Uh, I, was the, I was capable of anything that I cared, intellectual, that I cared to tackle. And so libraries were my friend. We got to go on holiday. Uh, to carav- we went to a caravan in Rill, which nobody's ever heard of. But it's, it's like if you, if you grew up in Stockport, Rill is where you went on holiday. It's not exotic. It's your typical seaside resort type place. Uh, and it would rain invariably. And if it rained, we loved it because it meant we got to go to the library, get books and come back to the caravan and, and in a tin tube where you can't hear each other with the rain thundering down, we would just read books. So I love books. I love libraries. The smell of libraries, I think, is 
it's different now with all the new ones, but they used to have a very particular smell mm-hmm. of wood and, and books and uh, pulp. It, it was amazing. But also, as I went to secondary school, realized very quickly that who I thought I was was not who I was. Uh, and that is just in terms of people were afraid of me. Because when I was 11, I was six foot something, and or maybe not quite, but mm. taller That's than I should have been. 11, yeah. Taller than I should have been. Right. Um, and f- more frightening than I thought I was to people who would cross the street and run away and scream when they saw me. And so you go to a library and you suddenly realize, not only is it a place I like intrinsically, but there are no other kids there. Kids do not hang out in the library. And if they do, they have to be quiet so they don't interact with you. Mm. And in the days before, I I went to school in the days before headphones and phones. So I I got to have silence. I got to have moments where I didn't have to look at other people looking at me like I was a freak. And I could dive into a world that wasn't mine Mm. and uh, be someone different someone remarkable who was exploring space or I don't know it wouldn't matter and so you said at 11 you knew who you were who was it I was a clever boy right right okay that's it I mean it, it didn't go any deeper into identity I was 11 years old I was a fat overweight uh, bookworm and I love reading and learning probably learning more than reading but reading facilitated it mm. and I liked not being around people because I'm I'm an extreme introvert, so people are very energy expensive for me. I enjoy the interactions, don't get me wrong, but the interactions are expensive. Mm. So I'm exhausted after a day of work because my work is, is involves mostly being around people all day. Um, and so, so that's who I knew I was. I knew where I could find refuge in books. Uh, Asimov is, is, is a, probably my favorite author, probably. And, and he has a... a, a a quote where he says that that many people think science I'll paraphrase many people think science fiction is 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 for the feeble of mind and is is frippery and unimportant but in fact science fiction is an existential metaphor for the human condition yeah it's an exploration of yeah. of, of what what is possible what is possible and almost all science fiction is especially the the early science fiction is always dystopian it's always about what happens mm. when technology runs amok when humans stop connecting to each other what happens when we don't take care of our environment um, or ourselves what happens to the world and indeed the universe when we we don't do those things so it's it's remarkably prescient many often not just flying cars and things like that but planets in distress and so how else has that library experience or that book experience shaped the man you've become I, I don't think I read the right books to, to, to appear particularly learned. Right. I, I read fantasy and science fiction, and I didn't read Latin tomes and, and things that Boris Johnson or Rhys Mogg would have been forced to read in their childhood. Uh, I read good. for the pure escapism <laughs> of it. I, I read for the pure joy of it. I read to, to dive into something where I could where eight hours could go by and it would feel like five minutes and the mm. moment I'm finished I realize I need to read that book again I love that mm. um, it's weird because I don't read very much now so I read a lot for purpose I read you know it'll sound so terribly like a betrayal of my childhood but you know Harvard Business Re- Review the <laughs> British Psychological Society journals that I have that I read every <laughs> I both contribute to and read every month um a ton of workbooks. So anytime somebody releases a book that's ostensibly about work, Simon Sinek, um, uh, Daniel Kahneman, mm. any of these, that's what I end up reading. And it's not that it's not enjoyable, but it's not quite the same. I forgot that I loved books. Mm. It, it, I had to rekindle my... <laughs> rekindle, excuse the pun. Nice. Um, <laughs> I I had to come, come back into books, and it was almost by accident. I read... Um, 100 Years of Solitude mm-hmm. on recommendation um, not that five years ago and up until that point because I used to read a lot when I was younger as escapism yep. lots of Dean Koontz oh yeah okay yeah my dad had tons but I, I read it to escape as well The it's, it's amazing plus I think there's there's something incredibly safe about being so engrossed in something that whatever's happening externally is no longer 
pinching you mm, if, mm. when you are so lost in I remember reading The Never Ending Story which is amazing it's just an amazing story a book inside a book inside a book it's it's wonderful mm. uh, and ridiculous at the same time um, and I remember reading that and then realizing as my mom makes breakfast we're in the caravan as my mom makes breakfast that I am on the bottom bunk of a bed I started reading this when I was supposed to go to bed and now my mom is making breakfast and it's the next morning and now I'm instantly exhausted but (laughs) nothing that bothered me the fact that I was overweight which bothered me the fact that that I was a loner and weird to people uh, which is still remains the same, bothered me. But none of that bothered me in the moment, in, in the middle of that book. In the middle of that book, I was a hero. It's amazing. And do you feel like you've changed? Because you said you're still a loner. So do you feel like you've changed a great deal since you were that 11-year-old boy? In, in what ways? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I've, I've changed well, dramatically. Well, that's an obvious question. Well, course. yeah, I mean, yeah, I, but but I, I mean, the physical thing is obvious. But, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a dramatically different person one of my friends I was just uh, in South Africa uh, partly for work and partly uh, with a colleague of mine and a friend and and his wife Uh, we go every year and uh, he said that he thought that that I had become markedly angrier over the last few (laughs) years Um, which I think is I think is true Uh, so that's why I mean that's a change Uh, the world is infuriating on a daily basis, it, it's it lacks a cogent thread. Stuff is happening that is so illogical, that's so counter to reason, that it can't be explained by a few a few extreme people who manifest often. Um, it, it, but it lacks a basis in 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 evidence, and that makes me crazy. Um, and many of these things uh, are, are are disproportionately targeted. Many of these, the, this this craziness is disproportionately targeted at minorities, and that's infuriating. And we're also in this wonderful place of denial, where because of Barack Obama, um, we're now post-racial, for example, because <laughs> of because there happen to be gay people who hold hands in public. There are no longer problems for gay people because the law has changed so there's there's this rampant painful experience for many uh, coupled with a denial that anything is wrong mm. uh, and then an accusation that you're playing the race or the gay or the woman card yeah. should you suggest anything is wrong and I think it's infuriating uh, I didn't I read a little bit of James Baldwin when I was much younger and it never really resonated with me I always thought that's such a I mean I knew about him he resonated with me. Right. I always wished I was James. Uh, you know, if I could, if I, if I, if I can end my life and and at the end of my life, people are saying, "Yes, John was like James Baldwin." I'd be like, "Yes, perfect. That is exactly what I want." Um, esoteric in a weird and wonderful way. Um, but I didn't. The, the, one of his quotes that he has is is uh, to be a Negro in America and relatively conscious conscious is is to be angry all the time. Right. And I didn't get that when I was younger. I think because I had such a deeply privileged experience when you play sport, you're, you're not really black anymore. Right. And if you are, you are black property, in which case you're treated relatively well, <laughs> um, as long as you don't realize you're property. <laughs> right. Um, but, but because of that, it didn't. And then in the, probably in the last, I want to say 10 years, but it's really probably the last five or so years. Yeah, my, uh, I'm... I'm reasonably furious underneath most of the time, underneath a reasonably calm demeanor. When those floodgates opened for me, I was like, oh, fuck, how do I shut that mm-hmm. <laughs> Right? Because there's not anything that goes missed, right? Every Everything, every time someone says something or looks at a certain you way. You see every microaggression. Everything. And I see the way people treat black women on the tube. And I, like, question. And I'm like, do they know they're doing that? Like, do they know they're... And it's sometimes, yeah, I check out a lot because I, yeah. I can't. It's a lot to deal with. It is. I mean, I'm I'm very fortunate in that my, I, well, much like you, I have the ability to articulate what I think. Um, but it is exhausting articulating visceral things into palatable sound bites. 
but I whom? do find doing uh, be, right. well. Most of the people who who we require to amend themselves to change would insist that the way that they are interacted with is one that does not cause offense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I the, you know, it's, it's the whole reason for the existence of unconscious bias training, for example, in workplaces. It's we have that because somebody sat there and thought we've got a bunch of people who are who are behaving poorly in observably poor ways but we don't want to accuse them of being racist sexist homophobic so how do we get them to change without telling them that we know that they are bigots (laughs) (laughs) and then ta-da unconscious bias it's not your fault it's your mom's fault it's your dad's fault it's the fact that you're from the north or from the south if you're in america or we made it we obfuscated around the real agency behind people's own bias um and even that's infuriating the number of conversations I had one earlier today came from work uh, just now, and I had a conversation just today about unconscious bias isn't real. Oh no, no, I'm sure it's real. No, it's not real. So you don't think it's real? No, I, it's not that I don't think it's real. I mean, it's the good part about science. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not; it, it remains true. <laughs> the evidence tells us that the, that unconscious bias is not a real thing. It's a, unconscious as a as a psychological concept is real. What so it, it's just a bias. What it isn't, yeah, but it's not that unconscious bias, for example, as a sentence in science can't exist. There are definitely things in us that are both subconscious and unconscious, those two things not being the same. Um, but the bias that we're talking about is manifest. It is. We don't, at this stage, have sensors in workplaces to tell when the man in the room wants to rip the clothes off the woman in the room or wants to grab her by the genitalia as as president Mm -hmm. trump we don't the only way we know this is because they either say it or they do it so if it manifests if you actually physically act upon it there are some some basic filters that we normally demand and indeed if you are a woman or a black person or a gay person those filters exist to, to change how we behave in almost every environment right and so it's just a it's just a kind of a churlish hypocrisy that means that the people who are committing these behaviors don't think that they have to actually behave better. Oh, yeah, it, yeah, it absorbs so un- that. Unconscious bias means, oh, I didn't know. It's deep inside me. It's <laughs> hidden in a permafrost, and I can't <laughs> access it. So now I've had this train. And, you know, it works on the idea that once you're aware of something, you change your behavior in, in a pro-social true, way yeah. about it. And we all know that's not true. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a scientist, but I know that's not true. <laughs> yeah, so it's, a, it's on pretty flimsy ground as a concept. But again, it's one of those things that it's, it's um, proliferation at this stage as a concept is because everybody wants to, to gloss over the status quo and everybody wants to believe that because Alsatians aren't chasing black people out of restaurants and Gay people aren't being hunted down systemically, though. Mm, That's only in certain environments. And uh, and even the one with women, our example fades now because we can't really use the example for women, can we? What do you mean? Women are in exactly the same situation where they... There's a brilliant hashtag that was on Twitter the other day uh, where it was talking about what would you do if there was a curfew for men after 7 o'clock? Mm. You, 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 you look at this probably walk through the world much more comfortably at night they talked about going out at night they talked about not doing that thing where they have to waste extra money on their Uber to make sure that they see the person into the door they talk about the fact that they could actually go out at night jogging with their headphones in they mm. talked about the fact that they could go out at night jogging they talked about the fact that they could go to bars and leave their drinks without worry of being being spiked they talked about being able to go into the bathroom on their own mm. without fear of a man following them into the cubicle. It went on and on and on. And you suddenly realize that's the progress we're lauding right now. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't feel that fulsome to me. No, it isn't. And hence the frustration. How are you managing that frustration? <sighs> Wine. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> well, okay, let me ask you this. I was thinking the other day about how Audre Lorde said, your silence will not protect you. Mm-hmm. And I'm prone to these kind of mind spirals. And I was like, maybe that's not true. In, a, in, a, in an actual fact, maybe she didn't mean it in the absolute, right? That we, that you must speak up at all costs because it'll kill you anyway. Um, and, I, and I'd say that to say there's a lot of anger that I sit with 
that I don't know what to do with um, and isn't finding its way out anywhere that I know mm-hmm. of. And so I'm wondering, how are you processing that? And- uh, I Again, I am unbelievably privileged in, in a way that most aren't. I am exactly the kind of person who's supposed to take some chances and say things that are unpopular because I have the backing um, and the wherewithal to deal with the blowback. Mm. Um, and so I do. But not everybody has that. And I am not, you know, it, for the LGBT community, for example, coming out has been has been hijacked by a group of people who are so eminently privileged that they don't realize that, that it is still in this country, not in Pakistan, not in, in Nigeria, but still in this country, it is dangerous for some. Mm. So I get a lot of critique, uh, especially in America. Um, I said it to one of the magazines there. I, you know, that coming out shouldn't, we shouldn't be just telling everybody to come out. No. Because I I don't have the, <clears throat> I don't have the, the resilience to deal with that call. And I've had one of these calls where someone who I say come out, uh, forget dying, and I have had that happen, uh, has killed themselves after the response of their parents. I don't have the wherewithal to deal with that on a mass scale. Right. Say, yes, everybody could come out. Once you're 11, because it seems to be increasingly young people, yeah. everybody should come out. Um, but I don't have the wherewithal to, to tolerate it if you come out at 16 and then unlike your brother or sister who gets their college paid for, you don't. Mm-hmm. Because we all know the trajectory that I've now set that young person on. And so we might say, yeah, they'll be happier because out is better than in. Yeah, well, they'll be happier. Maybe. But, but, they, <laughs> but they, they won't be able to go to college. So that dream job that they've always wanted will evade them. And, and, and I, from my house in Covent Garden, made that suggestion to you after I already got my qualifications after I didn't need anybody to support me Mm. that's why I think it's there's just there's a carelessness about how we talk about it so uh, what do I do with it I just I have wine and I eat too much bad food and that makes me miserable too but what's uh, your favorite bad food oh really disgusting stuff like uh, like I love pancakes and that's not terrible bad food no it is clearly it's awful but (laughs) It's not just junk. But then I also like just filthy burgers, the kind of yes. burgers that are basically falling to pieces on you. Um, and I can eat far more than I, uh, you know, than I should. So most people can have a burger like that and then they feel sick. Mm-hmm. I can do that and then eat an entire cheesecake. It's a problem. Mine um, is Ben & Jerry's. I love Ben & Jerry's too. Yeah, Half-baked is good. I like the pe- anything with peanut butter in it mm. is my thing. I love peanut butter. Mm. That's an American hangover, I think. Yeah, Nutter Butters. Mm. really good yeah sorry (laughs) but there's no yeah I mean there's no place to uh, I don't think I have any peers in in that kind of space to to, to, well I think what you're talking about is our responsibility right Mm -hmm. so at once there is this responsibility to when you have this kind of public platform and this privilege to do something with it at the same time you know you have to be wary of that privilege and of not encouraging people to do things before they're absolutely ready I think you're absolutely right that this coming out Shamir Sani spoke about this a few episodes ago about um what it's like for a person of color and the considerations that have to be made. Um, and that, you know, discreet does not mean reckless. It doesn't mean that one's hiding anything uh, or is not proud of who they are, yep. but rather has come to a conclusion um, looking at everything around them, looking at the state of the world, taking into consideration their family yeah. and saying, actually, I can, I am perfectly happy. I'm not putting a rainbow flag on my Twitter profile. <laughs> right? Just even if Coming out to me, my advice is, is always about creating a connection. Find somebody that won't require risk on your part in order to have a, a more fulsome kind of relationship with people where you can talk about the cute woman or the cute man that you saw, uh, where you can talk about challenges in your life and you can vent and you can dream and whatever else. Even if that's just one person you create that dynamic with, that's mm. a good start. The, the rainbow flags and the the kind of parades that can come later if you need that. Mm. How do you feel about the LGBTQ community? Uh, I think community is generous. <laughs> it's really, really generous. Go on. I mean, th- people will say this This is because I'm a uh, misanthrope, uh, but I'm not, is it a community really? Uh, is it a community? 
or is it is it a business a commercial affinity group um yeah fair i mean it does strike me that you're not really gay if you're not funny you're not really gay if you're not four percent body fat slightly gym obsessed you're not really gay if you're not white or light-skinned black guys can apply also um and some latinos latino yeah but that's rarer in this country i think uh, but i would agree with you in america entirely I don't know. It, it strikes me as a very limited community that is obsessed with, and certainly I'm I'm nearly fifty at this stage, and you know I am not part of that community. Uh, forget anything else about me. Fifty year olds are not gay unless you are Stephen Fry or uh, Gandalf, yes, Ian McKellen, both of whom are people I respect mm. greatly. But if you have to be exceptional in order to be included, just included in a group. Therein lies a challenge. A huge challenge. Because also, what is exceptional? I made this note as well, because <coughs> extraordinary, authentic, these are two words that come up um, in your work um, at Amici, Amici Performance Systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea of being extraordinary, of being authentic, um, of being, what was the word you described, um, you just used for Ian McKellen? Exceptional. Exceptional, yep. <laughs> It's all. So it's also terribly subjective, isn't it? it yeah, I, I think it, it more should be um, more based around the uniqueness of the individual. That's what I think it should be. Mm. So, uh, I, I used to live by Regent's Park, and and uh, I was playing music in my garden. I lived on the ground floor then, and I was playing. And a, and a man came by, clearly a rough sleeper, came by, and he asked for a request, and I put on this piece of music. And it was amazing. And I played it again and again. The whole time he sat there, he's just doodling. And in the end, he, he gives me this piece of paper and he said, you know, this is to thank you for playing some music, which oh. is a re- really weird reversal of the, where the thanks should lie. And it's uh, an amazing picture, that he, the, a drawing that he's made of Sharpie on white paper of, of, the, of, the, of Sam Cooke, uh, the 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 artist who was playing singing with a microphone in front of his face it, it's now in my house wow exceptional right yes extraordinary a skill i do not possess and i do not believe i could learn in any short order i have some skills that i don't think people can learn in any short order none of them are to do with sport um but everybody has those things but not everybody has the opportunity to manifest them in a way that gets recognized so that's why it often seems like exceptionalism in very narrow places where people in the arts in sport to a lesser extent in politics because i'm not sure you could call anybody exceptional in that space at Certainly this point not, yeah. um but there are these these places where it's it's you can see a pathway and that's why you see this this homogeny of people who are exceptional because the precursors of it are having a house having a place to sleep at night where you can shower in the morning and go to the loo in privacy is like one of the basic prerequisites of exceptional. So a whole bunch of people are lifted out of that. Having breakfast in the morning before you go to school is one of the biggest determinants of your school performance. So that takes a whole bunch of people out. Mm -hmm. You know, the quality of the school you go to, which is a postcode lottery for the most part, that takes a whole bunch of people out. So it does end up at the end that exceptional feels either really restricted to, to a certain narrow few types of people or arbitrary. Okay, and so setting your privileges aside, mm-hmm. how did you, or do you even, define your own, what's exceptional for you? Are there some kind of like, are there some steps you've taken to recognize what is, is, is exceptional for you yeah, and then to kind of abide by those. Is it value-driven? Is it performance-driven? No. So, I mean, you have to, I think you always have to face the fact that some of the things are just, are just um, they are genetically gifted. So my brain does a weird thing where it can take random pieces of information that seem disparate, pull them together into a cogent kind of narrative, and then um, I have the ability to describe that to people 
So for, for a psychologist who listens to people in organizations and tries to solve problems, it's pretty handy, useful yeah. skill. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't work on it. It just is. I get out of the way of my brain doing that is, right. is my skill. Oh, I get out of the way. Yeah. I, uh, so instead of clenching when the challenge comes, which is what most people do, they, their problem is presented to them. Sometimes even legitimately like a, a mathematics problem is presented. And the first thing you do is start clenching around, oh, my God, I could never answer. And that's, that's where it fails. That's my, that's my skill right there. Right. The problem is presented. I, I don't clench. So it's a, it's a pretty limited skill in the scheme of things, but it helps out disproportionately. And then the, the other, everything else is is about understanding that greatness is in the mundane. It's it's in the it's in the minutia. It's in the boring. It's in the repetitive. That's where it lives. That's where being really great at something lives. And I'm just really good at doing the mundane things uh, and delaying gratification of the eventual thing, recognition if it ever comes. Um, but de delaying the gratification of, of being seen as genius by clients or whatever by just doing super boring things. So boring and so mundane sounding that when clients ask us or when people ask me how I did that, it will often be like, oh, I could have done that. Right. Like, yeah, well, I know. <laughs> Anybody could do but this. I just did it, yeah. I do this as a matter of course. It's, it's, uh, when, I, uh, <clears throat> when I first wanted to go to America uh, to go to high school, I found a book that had a listing of all the high schools in America by uh, uh, the Fulbright Commission. Uh, still, they still exist as an organization for partnership across, academic partnerships across um, the Atlantic. And I went through the book and I put a pin in every other page. And for each of those schools, um, bearing in mind this was the mid early 80s, no, mid 80s, I took that name of the of the school and the headmaster and the coach of the, of the team, basketball team, and the address, and this was pre-email, I wrote 3,000 letters to America. Uh, I got three responses. Two of them were no, and one of them was yes. But that that is an example of how, wow, you know, that, that a seemingly insurmountable barrier just required a lot of knocks. It required 3,000 knocks to get one yes. And sometimes I can't even brush my teeth in the morning. <laughs> and, it's, it's, but, and it's remarkably hard because for many people, especially certain types of minorities, and indeed most, the number of knockbacks you get makes it feel like, what's the point in that 2,999th knock? Yeah. What's the point? And that's where the challenge lies. And it's especially frustrating when you see there are people around you who aren't as good or not passionate or have as much to offer and they've knocked twice and they're already in. Yes. And you're looking at them through the window and you're saying, what the hell? I'm still out here. Bloody knocking. Mm. And it's, but that's, that's what, that's, that's something my mother taught me. Well, and you seem to trust that seven. process. Yeah. And it's, it, and it's not, because it's, it's not very specific, right? So it's not just for, job interviews or whatever else but just in terms of your daily life most of the stuff that you want to get good at will once the initial excitement of it like a diet right the initial excitement of i'm going to lose some weight mm. and i've bought all the foods that i'm going to prepare for myself and then suddenly life interjects itself and you realize it's eight o'clock at night and you're exhausted and do i really want to make that heavy meal or that that healthy meal or do i just want to go across the street to the kebab shop and there's your mundane there's your mundane choice Right. That makes the difference between 2,000 calories before you go to bed or 500. Mm. And does that, it's, it's called, it's like step theory, right? This decision, does it take me towards where I want to go or away from where I want to go? And that's frustrating yeah. because while you're doing that and taking the stairs, the lift is still working. Yeah. It's just you can't get in it. Yeah. And you'll be watching as other people seem to... Whew, Whisk up to the 32nd floor while you're agonizing over a step. Uh, this actually is really interesting. I was t speaking to someone about what people don't see. Um, because, we, you know, we live in this age of social media. Mm -hmm. and it looks like everybody is flossing and, and moving so fast. Um, but no one sees the grafting that goes on behind the scenes. And I struggle with that as well, looking at my friends who are doing great things. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... I could be there, 
I'm sure I should be there, but I'm not there. I'm, I'm experiencing my setbacks. I'm working my way through one at the moment. Um, and I have trouble reminding myself to do the work, mm. like sit down at the desk, do the work and move it forward. Do you really want it, though? Whatever, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, do you really want it? Well, I want it on my own terms. I never know, I never quite know what that means. As in, okay, so I, I just saw my mentor the other day, and I've just finished reading um, the um, 1968 Congress of Black Writers. Mm-hmm. So it's an anthology of all their, you know, C.L.R. James and Harry Evans. Um, Moving Against the System, it's called. And I was so inspired and energized at um, these men, and it's notably men, and they excluded women a great deal, um, who were railing against the prevailing system, right? Mm-hmm. This oppressive system. They they genuinely believed they could undermine, overthrow, you know, tear down. And I think that we've lost that. And I mean, it's clear that we have, right? And I want to build something and do things outside of um, corporate money or appraisal from mainstream media or, do you know what I mean? And so whatever it is I think I could get, I don't want to get it in the traditional way. And it takes longer to build something that can stand on its own, I think. So I do want it. I just don't I, want it. Yeah. I mean, I suppose if I, this, this makes me put my like coaching head on. And oh. so I, I sit here and I think I still don't know what it is you want. I'm judged. I, I'm guessing it's something in media space. Yes. But sometimes the, the appeal of doing it outside of the system because the system is broken. is sometimes quite self-defeating. Okay. So um, it is kind of important that Moonlight actually got some traditional funding, that Moonlight won an Oscar. It's kind of important that it did that. It's really important that there are people out there who are viewed as people who have taken the traditional pathway because all you're doing is in the future when you are that success you want to be, people will look, people who will want to emulate you will look at your pathway and realize that only an extraordinary person can do that. The balance, the the equity that I'm looking for when I talk about equality of opportunity is that if the lift is broken, the lift is broken for everyone. If the, the path to being a surgeon is tortuous and difficult and only the, the top 1% of intellects can do it, that is equal for all 1% intellects. Right. If we create this environment where all the major black successes, all the major black gay successes, I mean, what a tiny <laughs> subgroup of a subgroup that is. If we look but at I'm their careers and, and realize that that they're so extraordinary with their ability to zig and, and zag and bounce back from almost catastrophic uh, pushback and then this, it, it's not, it won't be normal for people to say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. I want people to realize that Everything about what I achieved in sport, uh, whilst enhanced by the fact that I'm six foot nine, um, everything else I learned is stuff that they can learn. And the how of learning that is not that difficult. As a psychologist, I want people to realize that I'm a really good psychologist. And whilst I do have some brain things that, that work in my favor, uh, I can reliably inform anybody listening to this, if you're interested in being a psychologist, you can be a psychologist because right. you do not have to be a brain of Britain to do it. Right. I, I love the fact that where I am now is exactly where anybody could be who's willing to apply themselves and do a bit of mundane stuff, delay gratification just a little bit. That's all it takes. You do not have to ex- be extraordinary to do an ordinary job. And mine is an ordinary job. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, fascinating. I love it. But it is not extraordinary in and of itself. And if they look at you in the future with your media empire and they realize that much like Oprah, it would take, uh, in Oprah's case, a woman of such unbelievable substance in the current context, because it is worse now than it was five years ago. Mm. Then I don't know, what are we teaching people? That the only way to do an ordinary job, to be a doctor or a teacher, to be a nurse or a web developer, is if you are 
extraordinary. And I know it's the narrative of, of blackness, right? It's the narrative of working twice as hard to do get half as much. But it's not. There's actually really good data on this. It's it's, it's a very hurtful dynamic because it often means people then lower their aspirations so that the twice as hard is not too much. That's inter- this is very interesting <coughs> because I've never once in my life ever. I mean, I'm only 32, but I've I've never heard someone, a black person, namely provide a reason to move within the system, right? I mean, aside from those who believe in black capitalism, right, as it were. So Mm. it's very interesting to hear that to be successful within the system as a way of showing other people that they can also survive and thrive within it is not something I've actually thought of. And be frustrated with it and angry with it. But I, I sit on the board of a hospital trust. It's the biggest hospital trust in, in, in the country. 20-odd thousand staff. Uh, as you can imagine, in the NHS, many of them minorities themselves. Um, 11 hospitals. And I'm not the only black person on that board. Uh, but I am, I, I am able to, after three or four years on this board, I am able to, whilst working within the system, be a pain in the ass to the system. To say, hey, we've just hired some new hospital heads. Can't help but noticing the shortlist or a little bail. Yeah. <laughs> and right. I can do that. And, I, and when I send that email, it's not sent as some dude questioning it. It's sent as uh, the equality director on the board, the head of the HR committee on the board, and the black dude on the board <laughs> saying, hey, right. yeah. pay attention to this. Mm. And so any frustrations that I have to tolerate by being part of the system are ameliorated by the fact that I know that I can create some change within the system. And yeah, it's required some patience, some diplomacy, which is not my strong suit. But it's worth it because of the Indian nurses who we recruit directly from India because we can't get nurses in this country but who are having increasingly hostile time in our hospitals because of, well, since Brexit, frankly. Because we want to be a hospital that represents our community because we want to be, that, that I, I have an impact that impacts, radiates out from my own personal sense of comfort and that I would not have if I stayed outside the system. I mean, if I was just a prominent black dude going to the Manchester Evening News to tell them that I think Manchester's hospitals need to be more diverse. Am I making a difference that way? Hmm. I don't know. I think I'd have to be like 10 times more famous, more celebrity. I would have probably had to have a sex tape or something by now in order to get that kind of notoriety to even be interesting. (laughs) And then at that stage, I doubt very much whether I would have the kind of influence I want. (laughs) Being in the the system is is powerful because it shows that there are pathways for being ordinary and successful. And the narrative for black people is if you're not exceptional, you don't stand a chance of being ordinary. And then what happens to everybody who has a sense because of their background, because of the, the disadvantage that they've had to deal with, that they perhaps aren't as extraordinary as they'd hope? It tells them maybe to find an alternative way to be extraordinary, a countercultural way to be extraordinary. And I don't want that. I want them to realize that your what you've got can manifest right in my organization, right in my hospitals, that we want people who are diligent, hardworking, agile, willing to connect with people. But these are all things you can learn. Mm. It's, it's a lot to think about. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> no, I like it. <laughs> so it's refreshing to hear you talk about being able to move within the system and to have that influence mm-hmm. that you're talking about. It's not always about tearing down the system. Sometimes it's about surviving within it and doing well and being, as you said, um, ordinary. Um, but something you said made me think of a wonderful TEDx talk you gave mm-hmm. And I'd like you to tell that story to our listeners, um, kind of when you realized that you wanted to be a psychologist, mm. how, you, how you got there. 
Yeah, and people often think it's a little add-on because they think if you play professional sports, then whatever you do afterwards is just kind of a uh, something trivial. But it, I knew I'd be a psychologist when I was seven years old because uh, I watched my mum. My mum used to take me on visits. She was a GP, and she used to take me on visits, and I would watch how she interacted with patients. She did a lot with palliative care, so people who weren't going to get better. And I would walk into uh, into houses with her uh, at seven years old, and instantly the first thing I would tell her is like, Mom, the air is heavy in here. It's hard to breathe in here. You'd walk into these rooms, into these houses, and, and there would be a pall over them. Uh, it really was hard to breathe. I think people who are going through bereavement or near bereavement would will relate to this idea that sometimes it just feels like it's crushing you the whole experience so I would sit in living rooms while my mum went upstairs to do whatever she was doing and I would sit and wait and she'd come back down after a couple of minutes and then she would always be given tea because back in the 70s when your your doctor visited you, you got your best china out and you made, you made tea for the doctor and she would sit and drink tea and the moment she took her first sip people would fire questions at her almost like accusations what are we going to do now? How are we going to manage with this? What happens when this happens? Just the fears and frustrations coming out as venom, almost, in the most polite way. And she would let them talk and let them talk. And then all of a sudden, she would put a cup and saucer down. And she would just look at them and, and say, you can do this. And they'd say, Dr. Mate, you don't understand. And then she had this gesture she would do with her hand. And it wasn't a dismissal. It was... I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but it it, it it just waved across the room with her hands in the, in the briefest motion, and it made everybody stop. And then she'd say, you can do this. And then she'd give a list of things. You'll do this, this, and this, and I'll see you in a week. And then there would be silence. Except for a big breath. Everybody was like, you could... He wasn't gone, but you could breathe for a second. And then somebody in the room would would look at my mum and say, you're right, Dr. Amechi, I'll do this, this, and this, and I'll see you in a week. And I just remember, this is magic, what she's doing in here. I don't know what she did upstairs, the, the medicine stuff, right. but I knew it was irrelevant in the scheme of this thing that I discovered here, <clears throat> where you can talk to people and they repeat what you say. And more importantly, that the weight is lifted so you can breathe. It's like, this is cool. And then this was in 1977, and for the geeks who listen, they'll know that that was the year that Star Wars came out. So I went to see Star Wars with my mum, and we had popcorn, and we're watching, and the, the credits start to scroll, and it's amazing. <clears throat> uh, and then at some point, it's about 34 and a half minutes in, I think, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker and the speeder and they're heading into Mos Eisley and the droids are in the back and they get stopped by the stormtroopers and I'm, I think this is weird that the film is about to be over and it's only been half an hour and uh, instead of it being over they ask about the droids are these the droids and Obi-Wan Kenobi looks at them and, and he makes the, the exact same motion so such a tiny motion with his hand but with profound consequences he makes this motion with his hand and then says these aren't the droids we're looking for and of course they repeat back these aren't the droids we're looking for and he makes the same motion with his hand again and says we can move along and they repeat it you can move along move along and they escape and save the universe and I miss the next 10 to 15 minutes of of, of Star Wars simply because I'm staring into the side of my mom's face because I've seen this before I've seen her do this it's very exciting and so I'm staring at her and it takes her forever but at some point she notices as she's reaching down for popcorn she notices that I'm staring at her and when she notices that I'm staring at her even though it's 10 minutes later and the movie's moved on she just looks at me and she gives me the deepest nod ever like yeah that's right I'm a Jedi and that's the moment I realized that my mum's a Jedi and it wasn't exciting just for that because you watch that film and you know that if your mum's a Jedi you're a Jedi and I realized at that point I was a Jedi I went to the library next to my mum's surgery asked the librarian and this is again why libraries are so important where else can you ask a nonsensical question and get an answer that, that redirects your life 
And I said, I need some books about becoming a Jedi. <laughs> and she tried to point me to the Star Wars books. And I was like, no, you misunderstand me. I explained what my mom did and, 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 and how people just changed. And she said, that sounds like psychology. And so that's it. That's the entire reason I'm a psychologist. Because when I was seven, it was as close as I could get to being a Jedi. Uh, it remains the reason I'm a psychologist. My business cards say everyday Jedi on them. It's it's one of the, my early disappointments about being a Jedi, actually. I thought it was something that actually required lineage, and therefore it made me quite special. And in the course of my work, I realized that it's just a question of effort. <laughs> We're all Jedi. If we we can all be Jedi. If you're willing to make a bit of effort, listen to the people around you. I know that sounds crazy, but actually listen when people talk to you. Actually pay attention. Mm for those 60 seconds that someone's asking you what your order is. And if you really look at them when you're doing it, you'll watch how weirded out they are because yeah. their normal thing is to be treated like a vending machine for lattes. And you suddenly realize that just by being more purposeful, more mindful, more vigilant, more cautious, and more proactive, you can actually change the way people feel about themselves and their efficacy and ability. This is the entire basis of psychology. Right? This is the entire basis of psychology. is creating a dynamic between one or more people that doesn't exist in every day. And there's a thoughtfulness both to this both to the mundane right? Mm -hmm. Making that decision um, to do something over and over and over again towards a larger goal that's mm -hmm. thoughtful. Um but also to remember in those moments when you're doing something else mundane that you don't have to actually do, i.e. buying a coffee, to remember that there's someone, a human in front of you. Yeah. Mm. We're, we're, we're in an era right now where a lot of the work we do is looking at the impacts of AI on workplaces and organizations and how it's putting people, potentially can put people out of work. In this whole time, we're trying to make computers that are like people, right? Watson, we give them names, Alexa and yeah. Siri. Though in fairness, we only yell, we only yell at the women robots to turn our lights off uh, and make us coffees. We don't of actually course. give them deep in, deep in serious problems like Watson. But we personify technology at the same time as many people feel completely dehumanized, completely stripped of what makes them them. So here we are again. When you talk about inclusion, all we're talking about is not stripping people of what makes them them. Because when you do that, they're not as good at what they do. So it's selfish, in a way, to treat people right, whether at work or on the street. Well, it's that old age, isn't it? Treat others how you want to be treated. See, uh, <clears throat> I have this conversation all the time, but I never do that one. I never Why? treat people as I want to be treated because I want to be left alone with wine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I want I want nobody to talk to me. Um, right. Because that's where my comfort is. Okay. My maxim, because the golden rule is really the narcissist charter. Treat people how I would like to be treated. Of course, wouldn't it be great if the world was so so easy that we could treat everyone like we like to be treated? It would require no extra effort. The best charter is the one where we treat people how they need to be treated. Oh, that sounds much better. It so feels better. I, I'm not a hugger, but I hug people in the course of my job because they that's what they need in that moment i'm you know I, i'm not always in the especially after work i'm not always in the mood to hang out and network but sometimes you know there are people there you just need to mm. and it's not it's not um i don't want it to sound really worthy or anything because it's not it, i really enjoy it it's just super energy expensive but that's emotional intelligence <clears throat> right but that's part of it yeah mm. but it's it's the thing is when we call it emotional intelligence i often think people they, they make it a lot more highfalutin a lot more complex it's yeah. it's just we always do it right we, we we see people on the tube and there is the 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 woman with the the pram or the man with the two suitcases and we look we instantly recognize should we should we ask if we can help and and then we're like well you know i'd i'd manage it i think they'll manage it and and then it's gone right yeah you know it's 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 even simpler than we might imagine to treat people in ways that lift them. <sighs> yeah, you're right. Well, of course you're right. 
Um, <laughs> uh, Nobody so, I work with ever says that. <laughs> um, to close, I ask all my guests the same question. What do you hope for? I don't do hope. It's too... ephemeral. It's too... It's like wishful. Uh, I have things that I am going to make happen. Um, and I will make them happen through deeply mundane actions, not through anything extraordinary. And that's, I have a list of those things. So there are things I want to do with my business. I want it to be exceptional and world-renowned. I want to attract weird and wonderful talent from lots of different backgrounds and sectors who love to solve problems together and be colleagues. I want to be in the House of Lords as a crossbench peer. Um, and again, that for many people I think is surprising because that's like the heart of the system, right? But yeah. <laughs> but also, I've met a lot of crossbench peers who I've I've seen crossbench especially because it's that it's, it's non-party political, so you don't get whipped to answer in uh, to to respond mm. and vote in certain ways for depending on your party. But I've seen people in these positions who have who have managed to make profound changes. Uh, Baroness uh, Tani Gray Thompson is a good friend of mine, and I've watched as she's gone from Paralympian to to a stalwart in the House of Lords, who is a pain in the ass of every government when it comes to um, disability rights, when it comes to uh, welfare reform. There she is, right. and I think that is a way that you can magnify your voice. So that's one of the things I'll do. Um, what else am I going to do? I mean, I've I've done I've done the kids thing. I've got two boys and five grandkids, so I'm not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if I've got some spare time, I might try dating, but that's actually not true. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I am going to have more wine. That's no hope plans. Thank you so much, John. Pleasure. John Amici OBE is an organizational psychologist, chartered scientist, New York Times bestselling author, and CEO of Amici Performance Systems, a leadership consultancy working in Europe and the United States. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. I'm Anushka Astana, and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage every day from Hartlepool. I mean, the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places, and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point. To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats. We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.